For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. Thank you, everybody, who has been listening and subscribing on iTunes. We have new episodes every Tuesday at peterson.org and on iTunes. If you're listening, please subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes. Today, I am joined by Dan Neal. He is the automotive columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Go to wsj.com to read all of Dan's articles and see all of his uh, work. Dan, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. It's nice to be here, AJ. Uh, I'm. You've been on my radar for a long time, uh, as I'm sure you've been. People know who you are in the automotive world. And I'm excited to talk to you about sort of your history and what you've done and how you've gotten into it. But we'll go back to what kicked it off for you. What is your first automotive memory? Oh, uh, well, yeah. my dad had a white and red Corvair, which I barely remember. He also had white Lee jeans at the time. It's a and stylish guy. Absolutely. I real as I, as I got older, I was thinking, wow, that was really putting on, uh, you know, that was quite a presence. Yeah. And then uh, when I was eight, I stole my mother's car for the first time and uh, and drove it uh, until it ran out of gas. That was probably the first sign that something was wrong with me. Do you know what possessed you to want to steal your mother's car at eight and drive it? Sure, I could reach the pedals. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a Mercury Comet uh, four door of obviously you know beautiful car. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, it, uh, the keys were available, and uh, uh, the seat went up really far. And I was obsessed with getting out of the house. I tried to ran, run away when I was four. It wasn't that I was unhappy at home, but I just really had to go. And uh, this, the car made it uh, seem like it was a whole lot easier. But then, uh, but and obviously, uh, then I was caught, and things went downhill that day. How far did you get on that tank of gas? I drove it around town, around fifty miles or so, and I, I you know, I could see that it was. And you could, I mean, you could drive. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm no trouble driving. I mean, I, uh, yes, yes, no, that wasn't an issue. Uh, it wasn't automatic, three on the tree. Okay, so that helped a little bit easier. Yeah, a little bit, and uh, and. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, that was the first time, and then I uh, then I, first time really in a fast what I thought was a fast car was a Simca, a rear mid engine Simca uh, made in France, uh, and uh, I had a lot of fun with that. That was my neighbor uh, Rick's car. I hit his uh, mailbox and uh, took it off at the knees. Uh, in that, and I was about the Simca probably had more damage to it than the mailbox. Yeah, it was very. You know, I, I as you do, you romanticize the cars of your youth, and yeah. when you meet them in real uh, as an adult, you go, "Wow, that's a really cracker box." <laughs> it's like when you see the Batmobile for the first time. <laughs> yeah, in up close. Yeah, you go, "I don't know. It looked better." And you it's know. a bit of a ten footer. Yeah, exactly. Amen. So, uh, and then, but my first car, uh, now my father was an engineer and, uh, a boating enthusiast and a car enthusiast and a motorcycle. And so we had a lot of that going on around the house. And, uh, um, I remember vividly trying to help him repair the, uh, outboard, out drive of a Merc Cruiser, uh, stern driving when I was about seven. <laughs> and obviously I learned a lot on that, but, uh, my first car was a 1971. A uh, Fiat 124 Spider, uh, and you were up in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, Simca, Fiat, not so much Mercury Comet, but those sound like pretty exotic cars they for the were, era. Uh, they were extremely exotic, and it happened that we had because there was a Cherry Point a Marine base nearby Newburn. There were a lot of Marines going in and out. And a lot of so you know young bucks who want to bring cars back with them. Well, they would just buy sports cars. They would yeah. be interested in fast cars, and they would also be interested in. Um, uh, at this time, there was this very strange Fiat dealership in Newburn. It was incongruous in many ways because you know obviously Fiat wasn't a strong brand in no. Eastern North Carolina in the 1970s. And uh, but there was this one, and it, it sold. Uh, and I bought a, a I bought an X19, I bought a 124, a used one. Then I had a 131 Mirafiori, and uh, so I went through three Fiats before I finally got an Alfa Romeo. So growing up, were you always you always had the car bug in you? Yes, that seems to be the case. I, you know, I uh, I don't remember I don't remember learning how to turn a wrench or learning how to drive a clutch or uh, any of that stuff. But I do know how to do it. I must have learned it when I was very young. Uh, 
that's uh, so yeah it was very much uh, uh, you know the air we breathed and then uh, when I went to college I studied uh, uh, art history and design and uh, so that's how those two sort of uh, things came together the mechanical and the aesthetic and but you weren't studying journalism yet did you have an idea of when I'm out of here this is you know what did you think your path was going to be uh, well, I started. I mean, I was I was going to be an academic. I was going to be, uh, you know, uh, an English professor. Um, I got a master's in English and uh, this, and a degree in uh, creative writing, and then I had a, this uh, degree in art history, uh, which was dominated mostly in that coursework was mostly dominated by 20th century design. And uh, but did I know I was going to write about cars? No. I decided to write about cars one night when I was working at the News and Observer as a copy editor. I was on the desk, uh, what they call the slot, the national slot. And I read a story about uh, the life of automotive journalists flying everywhere and driving fast cars and having a good time. And I said, you know, that sounds like fun. I think I'll do that. So the perks of the job. The perks of the job. uh, Which I don't think has changed today. I I assume a lot of people are going. All right. uh, (laughs) I can go see the new Porsche Milan for free. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, sure. I just have to do what? Just write a few words about it? That's right. I'm on board. Well, exactly. In fact, one of the uh, issues with the, uh, let's say, the craft and trade of automotive journalism is that so many people will do it for free just for the cars and the trips, sure. which makes, you know, kind of knocks the professional standing out of it. Uh, you know, people are doing it, singing for their supper. But, uh, but, uh, but the other thing was that I was a newspaper guy, and I loved the newspaper business and still do. And, uh, you know, I was a feature writer, and I, wrote, I was a drama critic for a while, um, which was kind of cool. I thought that was fun. And uh, then the automotive part came out, and I just tr- basically tried to apply the uh, the dramatic criticism and the dance criticism and the ar- uh, architecture criticism, all that uh, that kind of language I applied to automobiles in a way that was unusual for, uh, at the time. Um, but I ha- I also had models to, uh, to to follow in terms of humor. You know, the funniest guy who ever did this job is a guy named John Phillips from Car and Driver, mm-hmm. and his style his style was uh, hugely uh, influential. And uh, so, one of the things that uh, happened when I started writing about it is I was taking it seriously. I was taking it. I was treating it as an as a proper intellectual pursuit instead of the ghetto of car enthusiasm, which it usually is. Um, it's funny you say that because, and we'll get into this later on, that ghetto is very strong now, probably stronger than ever, but it, it's funny back to the 70s and 80s, that was still an issue. I mean, that is, as a professional journalism jur- journalist, um, to sort of look at other people and go, you're not in this for real. Yeah. You're not in this for the right reasons. Well, there, and there's still, especially now, I mean, you probably, you and I could probably come up with a list of people who are incredibly talented mm-hmm. and write beautifully and have as many marvelous thoughts as, uh, as I ever would have, but they're underemployed because the employment landscape in this field, writing seriously about cars, you know, is dominated by fanboys or it's dominated by commercial interests, people trying to sell you cars. You know, there's the lightly... Uh, was it always like that, though, when you first started? When it, you got... What, when was your first sort of, I'm not just a guy writing for magazines or newspapers, I'm not just a journalist, but here I'm Dan Neal, I'm an automotive journalist, professionally. Um, well, I had, uh, you know, I started working for... Uh, Auto Week in the 90s, and uh, and I, I sort of served an apprenticeship there, and then, um, but in terms of the persona, uh, the uh, the columnist persona, I mean, it probably goes down to uh, when I was fired from the News Observer for writing about sex in the back of a uh, uh, Ford Expedition with my wife. Okay, well, th- that makes it better. Well, it was, and we were wearing our seat belts and okay. so safe sex. Got it. And uh, Expedition's a big car. 
Well, this is my precise yeah. my point. I was trying to demonstrate in a gentle, loving, and a decent, humane way that this car was big enough to accept, accommodate life in all its variety and take the kids to soccer or, you know, go to the grocery store if you want to spice up your marriage, you know, the, the occasional roll in the hay. And the, so it was a positive review. Well, absolutely. Say. Absolutely. Yeah. I said, you liked the car. Well, and not only that, it was it had uh, it had a lot of room and uh, you could operate the radio uh, controls with your toes, I noticed. I found that out. Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't want to say I found that out the hard way because it would be too bad of a pun. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. But I tell you what. Speaking of puns, the um, that story where I uh, wrote about this encounter with my wife in our driveway, um, it was uh, it taught me the power of metaphor because uh, the one image of that whole story was this image of the footprints on the windshield on the inside of the windshield. And that apparently was too vivid, too strong, too believable uh, an image uh, to uh, – it, it was finally too far. And that's when uh, things started to come. Was there no heads up from an editor or from anyone that said, might not be your best story? Ah, that's a beautiful thing. And that's one of the reasons my career has been kind of an unusual one. Because when I started writing about cars, I didn't work for the newsroom. I was working for classified advertising. They needed somebody to paginate – the classified advertising section. They never said anything about reviewing cars, but I went ahead and took it upon myself to write a review and stick it in, uh, stick it in the front of the section uh, that I was putting together. And then people liked that, and I did it again the week next, and I did it and did it. And pretty soon, and rather than asking permission, I asked for forgiveness, and I was the automotive critic for the News and Observer. Did you look back on that article? One, was your wife mad? Oh, no, it was her idea. Okay, and two... Um did you learn from that? Did you look back and now do you think, okay, this is how I should, this is how I could have structured the article differently? No, or no. Or do you sort of look back and go, free speech, screw them? No, I look back thinking that was the smartest thing I ever did. Uh, and uh, in composition and in life, I've learned that, you know, uh, fortune favors the bold. And uh, so uh, in, in that case and a few other notable cases where, you know, like the famous GM episode uh, at the Los Angeles Times when they pulled the advertising from the, uh, from the L.A. Times because of something I had written, uh, it, it, it all worked out for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as, it, as it typically, as it, uh, I should say not typically, but it has so far. And uh, uh, so, no, I felt really cool about the, the – uh, I was panicked when I was fired. Don't get me yeah, wrong. You need a job, right? And then uh, you know, and then I started working for a car and driver, and that was a great experience. And I learned a tremendous amount from Chubba Chetta and uh, those guys. They really knew their stuff. How have you seen this industry? Uh, I guess the automotive journalism industry evolve. I mean, you, you've been in it since not the conception, but early days. To now, everybody has a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a thought. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks everyone should hear their thoughts, um, paid or not. Mm-hmm. Um, how, is, how have you seen that sort of change over the years? Um, well, there's the enthusiast community, right, that uh, uh, will read Motor Trend, Car and Driver. And uh, <laughs> I had uh, the editor of Car and Driver tell me that if there's not a Mustang or a Camaro on the cover – they lose 10,000 uh, rack sales right off the top. You know? Wow. It's just, you know, it's like, sure as, uh, sure as it rains. No, I mean, and, and I put a photo on Instagram. If it's a red Ferrari, it is liked that much more than, you know, a Buick. So right. it, it does, there is a science to that. There is, and especially when, in, in terms of the American audience, uh, they, have, uh, they have their dog whistles, and uh, they do love them, some Mustang and some Camaro. Uh, how has it changed? Well, uh, it's gone through this period of extreme inflation when everybody was doing it, and now it's uh, contracting. The the you know the space is contracting because it, nobody is getting paid, and you know you can do it for a couple of years, but then pretty soon somebody's going to say, "Get a real job." I mean, and there's not a lot of U's out there, whereas. 25 years ago, there was a U maybe in every market and yes. region. Oh, and now, for sure. And now they look and go, all right, Dan can ride it. We'll syndicate it to 300 outlets. 
Uh, it will go online. The world will see it. Let's call Absolutely. it a day. Absolutely. And by the way, that's uh, you're right. Many, many talented people have found themselves without a place to sit um, because of the contraction of the business and this, the, as you say, the consolidation of the media. Then the other thing that was uh, that kind of happened was uh, the advertorial phenomenon. Um, you know, there was uh, people, and this is, I think it's a big part of what you would, is kind of quasi-journalism now. It's, uh, it's, it's not really, uh, it's co-opted by the manufacturer. And so people can write very friendly, you know, complimentary stories about this, that, and the other, and uh, this car or that. Well, and not only that, they might put their real opinions aside because they want to be invited to that next trip in Milan, and they sure. want that next car. Do you find that because this is a, this is a very small industry, the the PR side of the automotive industry, the journalism side, everybody knows each other, um, everyone sees each other on a regular basis. Do you ever feel what's the last car you hated that you drove? Uh, that would be this the one in uh, uh, this Saturday's paper. Uh, which is the uh, Chevy uh, Malibu. But your point is well taken. Well, <laughs> hold on. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to get mad at you for ill-talking a Malibu. Uh, um, not, not unless you're among the 8,000 people who are involved in the building of the Malibu. <laughs> but do, is there a part of you go, I know the people at GM. I like them. They're good people. We talk. We you know, we go difficult. on trips. I have to rip your car apart. That's I mean, exactly right. That's exactly right, and you, you've you've practically said that's a that's a verbatim quote. You know, I'll say I love you. I think you're great. And I love everybody. You know, I love automobiles, and I love the people who make automobiles. I think we probably have that in common. The coolest, funnest, most amazing people in the world build automobiles. Yep. And uh, and I love the process, every bit of it. But I do occasionally have to say, you know, I think you guys are great, but your car is awful, and. Uh, so that's what I'm accomplishing in uh, Saturday's paper. But usually, you know, it's a, uh, you, you do have a if you the more you know about the process, the more sympathetic you are because you know how very difficult it is to build any car, even a bad car. Uh, so, uh, but that being the baseline, you can't really softball every review because you feel bad about the people. No, you, but, and and you don't want to sacrifice your writing. Um, and then also, there's the. Do you? How often are you faced with? And I, I don't know what what your daily driving car is, mm. um, but your interest. You know, I don't. If you're, I'm assuming you're more of a sports car kind of guy uh, with your Fiats. I don't know. I, that's well, sure. I mean, uh, I still like. I took that Mustang to Palomar. Mm -hmm. Drove it from Palomar to San Diego a couple of days ago and ripped it a new one. Had a great time. That was and, amazing. And you might not be a Mustang guy, or if you Whoa. are a Mustang guy, yeah. you you love that car. Um, I try and take the, the quick answer is I try and take its expectations and fulfillment of expectations. You know, does a car create expectations, uh, and does it successfully fulfill them? And uh, so that's uh, so I enjoy a lot of cars from Prius to P1s. Even if you wouldn't personally, hey, this yes, minivan exactly. is a great minivan. I would never drive it. I would never own this. But if you're in the market, this is a great option. No, you know, that's a, I, I think that uh, is a dispositional thing. You know, I'm, I, I like everybody. I yeah. like every, I try and find the good in everybody. And so the, uh, the same thing probably applies in uh, my approach to automobiles. You know, and I see a car and uh, I, I think I am usually pretty even-handed about it. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I had a car recently that I, I liked. And it was fun, but it was one of those, you know, my back hurts, my legs hurt, <laughs> the transmission's rough. Really? Um, it was a very small car. Uh -huh. And I'm uh, there's a coworker here who daily drove a Lotus Elise for the longest time. And he's all excited, and he's asking me about the car. And I'm telling him everything bad I don't like about it, mm -hmm. even though I overall liked the car. Mm -hmm. uh, and he went, oh, that sounds exactly what I want. Mm. So, you know, just because this isn't a car maybe I would buy for myself to drive every day. That's right. But I do see the good qual – I mean, do you do you have that issue? No, I, I, I'm uh, – I, uh, when I step into a car, uh, I try very hard to imagine myself as the, as the person who would buy it or the person who would drive it off the lot. And uh, so, no, I, 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 can be, uh, I can be fairly selfless about that. And I can also, uh, I mean, uh, I'm well known for saying that minivans are among the sexiest vehicles on, on the planet. Now, uh, why is that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, because 
Because it is a totem of heteronormative behavior. If you have a minivan, chances are you are straight. If okay. you are a mini, if you are a man and you are driving a minivan, chances are you are married and you have kids. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, females pick up on these cues because you know it's it's the it's the logic of the savanna. They're looking for the prime mating, uh, you know, it's individual. It's a visceral, exactly. You know, exactly. it's it's we like women with you know wider hips because Ex- childbirth. Exactly, exactly, and and for just that sort of innate uh, uh, re- level of reasoning too. So. Uh, so women see guy in a minivan, yeah, they go, good father. Exactly. He would make uh, a an excellent mate choice for me. And, of course, you know, females uh, from the time of the Savannah uh, look for individuals who are able to invest the most resources into their offspring. Therefore, therefore, the minivan most clearly uh, telegraphs your, uh, if not your availability, your inclination and your ability to be... A, uh, a good, uh, how you say in Los Angeles, mate bre- breeder. breeder. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's actually an extremely valid, unique point. I still think I'm going to take the free Bentley next month okay, for the yeah. road trip. All right, all right Bentley. However, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do now have a newfound appreciation for a minivan. Well, let's just let's have a little, let's model this okay. thought a little bit more. So the Bentley you regard as being, uh, you know, it it says that what you want it to say about you when you drive it. Yeah. You're embracing the Bentley image. Uh, how would you? How do you think women feel about Corvette drivers? Oh, they hate. Well, same way most guys feel about <laughs> Corvette drivers. Um, <laughs> Corvettes get a bad stigma, whereas, yes. and we had a big Mustang celebration here for the 50th anniversary, and I think it was Dave Kinney uh-huh. um, said something that really stood out. He goes, no one hates you in a Mustang. <laughs> he said, a Corvette, you get the finger, a Ferrari, you, get, you know, Mustang, everyone's sort of on board. So there are... That and, is so true. That and is, I've had cars, yeah. I've, I've had, I had a car true. that I felt like uh, a douchebag in it, uh-huh. and it made me even drive like a douchebag. Mm, interesting. That interesting. It, it's it, a self-fulfilling it, prophecy. It wasn't a bad car, but it was just like, <laughs> you know, especially with a convertible, and I'm sitting there going, oh, God, everybody's looking yeah. at me. And then I'm going, yeah. oh, I'm going to drive this car the way it was people are expecting me to. Yeah. So yeah. there is those, you know. You, what I try to do, because you know, like you've said with some of these journalists, the beauty of this industry is you're granted access to stuff you never could afford. And working for a nonprofit, that opens me up to a lot of cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to pair. I'm going. I'm taking a GTR Nismo up to Colinga this weekend for a race event. Very nice. So I try to find events and story ideas that I can pair a car nicely to when we go to Pebble Beach. Uh, two years ago, we had five guys, a week of luggage, and you want to stand out. We took a CTS-V wagon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this year, it was uh, two guys. We took an M4 convertible. So uh, you, you, I tried to find the most appropriate car for what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think that's a, I think that's a val- very uh, valid approach. And uh, um, so, uh, but what about um, Miata MX-5? Being a car nerd, I love them. Uh-huh. Um, well, we're just talking about mate selection now. We're talking about status and presentation. Uh, in let's let's narrow it down even yeah. further. Los Angeles, which has its own grammar. Well, let's narrow it down even further for the negative connotation. <laughs> I live in West Hollywood, yeah. where that car would not. You know, nobody would see a single guy in West Hollywood in a Miata and and blink twice. In fact, my neighbor has uh, an Alpina Z8. And a very clean original M edition uh, Miata, Ooh. and you go, okay, that that makes sense. I, from a status symbol, especially now, I don't know. It's one of those ten years ago, it wouldn't be caught dead in one. Um, now, I think the stigma has finally worn off, which mm. is weird because it's one of the best selling roadsters ever. It's mm. the most race car Great. in America. Everybody loves them. No one has a bad thing to say about them. But I do think ten years ago. No guy wanted yeah, to drive, and, and they almost they saw an effect. issue with it. Is this is a great car? It's something I want to drive. I just don't want to be seen in it. Yeah, they thought it was effeminate. Yeah, now I think there's been so much love for the Miata, especially the new one, that they now look back at the old ones and go, "No one cares." No, right. one, I mean it's 
you know, maybe you get that with a Boxster and, and no one really cares. You know, a guy can drive that. But yeah, there are certain cars where you just go, I don't, I might love this car. It might be a great car. Mm, don't want to have, uh, you know, the, the sorority girls in the, in the Camaro yeah. convertible pull up next to me while I'm driving it. Right. Well, the Camaro, I must say the Camaro, uh, as I may have mentioned, it is the most beloved car I've driven in LA lately. Um, the new, new one, the, the one I'm driving t- today that with battleship gray with the blue. Oh, I thought you were driving the, or you thought you were driving a Mustang. Yeah. Mustang 350 GT. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Shelby. But, uh, that car has a uh, huge Quan, huge street appeal. And, uh, again, everybody, you know, everybody who's ever imprinted on a Mustang really, really loves it. I think even though it is a muscle car and even though it is kind of, you know, big and bad, it doesn't carry quite the douchebaggery of, uh, a Z06. And I, exactly. and I, I loved driving a Z06 and I thought it was a great car, but there is a negative connotation for better or for worse. And I think that's maybe what a lot of Corvette owners like about that car is it ah, gives well, them. Uh, that's another thing. They like to be bratty. And, yes. uh, and and yes, exactly. Uh, I think there's something to be said for there, that. There is, uh, I won't point out the stereotypes, but there is a stereotype for every uh, manufacturer. If you're a Porsche guy, a Ferrari person, a Corvette, a mm-hmm. Mustang, VW, there is a, oh, that person's like this. Mm. That, you know, Subaru, that's these people. Porsche, or those kind of guys. Jeep. Ferrari, Jeep. I mean, they're... There, there is a condensation for all those cars. Um, well, and some of those things were uh, not not entirely illusory. For example, in the 1930s, Cadillac did conspicuously market to African Americans and created a foothold in the African American community that still exists today. Um, uh, the same thing with Jeep and, and uh, no Subaru. Subaru uh, was the first ma- uh, open uh, first manufacturer to. Uh, by LGBT themed advertising, and hmm. instead of running away from this idea that you know only lesbians drove Subaru Outbacks, embraced it and made it. And and guess what? Subaru's sales are up fifty months in a row. You know, makes they sense. Never, they never had a they never had a down month since two thousand eight. Subaru's never had a down month. Now, I'm not saying that that's. Uh, uh, Correlation isn't causality, but uh, but but I mean, give the Scion FRS for an example. I'm 28 years old. I want a reasonable every day to drive sports car. I want something fun for the weekends, but easy to get through traffic. Right. My own personal issue is I feel I'm too old for a Scion. Um, mm, you know, I remember the XB as a kid when it first came out, and it's a you know it it sort of failed as a or it has failed as a youth-oriented manufacturer, but personally, my own opinion was, I'm too old for a Scion. The Subaru I could buy, it's the identical car, Mm -hmm. uh, but the Scion, if it was a Toyota, I would be all over it. Um, So just the badging alone can really change your opinion on a car. Well, they've solved that problem for you, haven't they? (laughs) It it was a little bittersweet when I read that article, Yeah, because I went, I I like Scions. There's there's something always funky and cool about them. Mm -hmm. I hate to see it go away, um, and then I go, oh, I can now buy a Toyota rear-wheel drive sports car for relatively cheap. That sounds kind of nice. Um, back to you, though. You won a Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? How uh, did it come about? Was it something you expected? Uh, well, it was um, uh, It was something that we had tried to do when i hired on at the la times the editor uh was a guy named john carroll who's who had read my stuff at the news observer when he was the editor of the baltimore sun and he would get these you know the news observer from baltimore from uh, raleigh and there'd be these insane articles that i had written and i you know did it for years and so he remembered me and so when they had the job come up he called me and said hey would you like to come to los angeles <clears throat> and I said, uh, you know, I will on one condition, and that is that I want to win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and uh, he said, well, we can maybe make that happen. So, so uh, it was something you were going for. Yes, we we uh, we submitted. What 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 happened though is that I was only there for sixteen weeks before I won. I'd been working there four months before they donate. They submitted these columns 
for the criticism column. Everybody else in the office must have hated you. It was a little awkward. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and also, believe me, I felt bad about it because there were guys 25, 30-year veterans of the newsroom. And, uh, you know, I waltz in and I walk off with the, uh, with the Pulitzer. And, uh, I mean, it was fluky. Uh, but it was uh, part of it had to do with the way uh, the Pulitzer Committee was trying to open up their uh, their mission. And later on, I served on the Pulitzer Committee for three years as a judge. And uh, so there was definitely an effort to be more inclusive in terms of the the rhetoric that was to be rewarded. And another part of that was that they were trying to figure out how to deal with new media and uh, which is still an ongoing... Which is also funny because they're going to the LA Times, one of the oldest news institutions and thinking new media. Well, at that time, you know, uh, John Carroll, uh, we won five Pulitzers that year. Uh, I was one of five uh, winners for the paper, and that was, uh, I think the record is six with the New York Times. But uh, so it was a huge haul and a big, big deal and a lot of media. Um, But how did it make me feel? Well, one thing that, uh, you know, in an... A profession that is really as marginal as automotive journalism is in yeah. so many ways. The sense of validation uh, was enormous, and I—I I mean, literally, I was like, "Well, no matter what else happens, they can't take it away from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how bad I stink in the future, <laughs> you, you <laughs> always have that. That's right, I always have that. And so, you know, in a, in a uh, <clears throat> in an industry that I think it's fair to say lacks a lot of intellectual respect. Uh, that felt really good. At the same time, I realized it was in complete fluke. Um, <clears throat> the timing was right. Uh, the the writing was uh, was right there for that that uh, you know that moment, and uh, and they just wanted to uh, to make to stir things up. So they gave it to me. The next year, they gave it to the criticism award to the Washington Post fashion editor. And uh, so, and then Jonathan Gold, of course, won it for uh, food criticism here in L.A. And uh, so that was just uh, the criticism category is uh, one that uh, you can win. By the way, you, in case anyone wants to know, you can also win the Pulitzer in playwriting, and it's a very soft category. So, you know, start well, writing. <laughs> once, if you could talk to the right people and get podcasting on there, uh, that would be nice as well. Podcasting, yes. Podcasting puts a different. Uh, that, that they be, want new media, right? And, and it's a huge issue. I might be going up against cereal, but <clears throat> you know, still, there's a shot. There's well, a it, shot. It, it is. It is a newspaper. Uh, it's newspaper oriented. Still, yeah. as always, will be. Um, and uh, though, like I say, you know, well, ten or twelve of the awards are newspaper, like Spot News series, public service, and then you'll have the drama, the criticism, music is one. Uh, you can get a Pulitzer for American music. And uh, so, yeah, it was really cool. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I rode that pony pretty far. You know, one thing that was uh, <laughs> ironic about it is, yes, of course, I won the Pulitzer so I can write really well. That doesn't mean that I know everything there is to know about the automobile. And so uh, early on I had to clear, you know, I had to avoid appearing t- uh, to claim an expertise I didn't have. Yeah. Uh, Did, you were the first automotive critic to receive it. Mm-hmm. I, I think there has not been another one since. There won't be. It's, it's, it was too fluky. <laughs> so do you, do you do think because of the fluke there will never be another? Yeah. yeah. Also, there was a lot of pushback from uh, when I won. Uh, I remember when uh, David Carr wrote an article about it, and uh, there was a critic uh, worked for New York Magazine. His name was... I uh, can't remember. But his argument was absolutely right. In fact, I was reading it. He was bagging on me getting the uh, the award because he says, you know, automobiles are not art. Uh, art is expressive. Art is non-functional. Art is cultural, not practical. All of these things are true. Um, they are true to a lesser extent uh, with uh, uh, architecture and cars. Um uh, but it's uh, so. This was a this was a very uh, a fine point and a theoretical point. Is what I do reviewing? Is it criticism in the way that uh, 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 let's say who wrote the book about criticism recently? Um, not John. Yeah, it's John Perellis of the New York Times wrote about uh, being a critic and what it means the project of being a critic in in, in a larger culture. Uh, anyway, it. it uh, it had a uh, it was a very big moment for me, 
and it was very exciting, and I was able to uh, ride that and feel uh, really good about it. And, uh, but after, after about a week, um, it, it became a source of some slight embarrassment. And even now, people introduce me as Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, automotive critic. And, I thought about putting it on the intro. Uh, well, no, I, believe me, it's, uh, I, 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 I have never in my whole life said, oh, yeah, you know, I won a Pulitzer. Uh, well, I think uh, last time I saw you was around you was at Pebble this year, and you were introduced as, like, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, credit to large. I mean, it was like a uh, you know, you know, bringing James Brown up onto the stage. Yes, it was just right, one right, more right, thing right. after another. That's right. Number one soul brother of uh, yeah. the internal combustion engine. Uh, yeah, Godfather of riding. Exactly. But um, another thing, and I've been ten years. I think it's almost of wanting to ask you this question, um, not in a weird way, but my my best friend worked on the documentary. Revenge of the Electric Car, mm-hmm. which is the sequel to the very famous Who Killed the Electric Car. Mm-hmm. We were sitting in the editing bay, and, I, and it was and it's sort of a special documentary to me because I'm one into cars, and uh, but two, I, I was sort of right there for the whole process, which actually angered me because he was my roommate at the time, didn't care about cars at all. This was just his work. He liked documentaries, and I want to go. What do they say next? What are they talking about cars? What do you get to go see? And there, there's mm. you're an interview in it. Mm-hmm. And there was a line that they debated cutting out where you said, my next car will be electric. Right. And I said, it's Dan Neal. It's L.A. Times. That's a, an important authority in the automotive world. If he says that, that is a powerful statement. And you're welcome. They kept the line in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um was your next car electric? I haven't bought my next car uh, uh, yet because of that very thing. Because they're, uh, well, first, uh, you know, in terms of carbon uh, emissions, uh, the best thing you can do uh, really is to hold on to a car as long as possible because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of carbon inputs went into making a car. So you mm-hmm. want to get the most out of it before you junk it. Um, but also, uh, there there haven't been that many uh, really uh, uh, persuasive electric cars that I could afford. There is a well. There was none at that time. That's right. That's right. Um, there literally are zero. There so are you few. had the, the Tesla Roadster. You had the Vault, which was a hybrid, and the Leaf, yeah. and and that was really it. Now you have the Model S. You have the Bolt coming yeah. out. That's exciting. I. Keep I, I drive a Ford Focus, and I keep saying, once that car is done, I'm just going to do this $99 a month Fiat e-lease. How could you go wrong? It pays for itself. It totally does. You, it's it's cheaper to drive that than gas. I can charge it here. I can charge it at home. Um, and then, you know, go buy my weekend car. So I like electric cars. Um, I don't want to buy one be- so much because I want to go green, but... I do want to buy one because it's so much easier. It's a better, it's a better machine. Um, uh, there are a lot. There's many mechanical advantages. So, too. will are you waiting for the right electric car for you? Well, the right car is probably now on the market. Uh, what I was really hoping for was C Max Ford C Max electric uh, with more range. Uh, so, and I feel that the next generation of that uh, did they C- do a purely electric? Yeah, C Max. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, what they call it? The Energy. Remember okay, the yeah. They, remember the. Well, energy? I know there's a plug-in. There was sort of a plug-in, like the Volt, a plug-in hybrid system. Right, right. And then there was a there was a full a battery pure electric. Because even there's a pure electric Focus that yeah didn't for some reason did not do too well. Um, I don't know if they still make them, but it, the great thing with these cars, what I like about them is you know, they're forty fifty grand, but. Or lease them one ninety nine a month, no money down. No, they're leasing. They're giving them away. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely giving them. For a leaf, you could probably, you know, they literally t- pay you to get it off their lot. And it's the most appreciated car right yeah. now. You can go to CarMax and get one two years old with 10,000 miles, a lease return for nine grand. grand. Really? God, that's a great deal. Yeah. <laughs> that's it a lot really of car, is. A lot and, of car. and you go, okay, it's 60 miles range, maybe 80 miles range. It's not the latest and greatest, but it seats five. It has a trunk. It will get you point A to point B. Ninety-five percent of the time, right, right, right. Now, the uh, I, I think that uh, one thing that's happening right now, and this is just uh, you know, progress is being made on many fronts. But the cost of a kilowatt hour of energy storage on board an automobile has plummeted. It used to be a thousand at that time. We were doing that documentary. Uh, lithium storage was about a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour uh, on board. 
it's now $145 per kilowatt hour onboard storage, which is the number that uh, the Volt is based on their, their calculations. And uh, it very soon will be under $100 a kilowatt hour when the Gigafactory gets on board and that, that sort of... Uh, uh, as the technology progresses and the, and, and the volume is mostly a volume question it's just how you know when suddenly there's the capacity reaches a point where the uh the item the price can start to come down uh some people uh, uh let me see if i can remember who the company was that predicted this some wall street analysts said that the price of batteries could go down 30 percent in two years from from like last week um when you're starting to, when you're talking about that kind of energy storage, you're, you have a lot of opportunities. Uh, you can lower the cost of the automobile overall because electric cars are simpler, mm-hmm. and uh, the part the part uh, list is cheaper than except for the battery. And uh, you have uh, you can also put a lot more batteries on board to make a fast. You can go car. longer. You go longer. Faster, but longer, absolutely good. Lord, you know, that P90 has got 90 kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, the the Volt has got over 60 kilowatt hour battery packs. So it's just a b- lightning in a bottle. Yeah. So, uh, but I will buy uh, a uh, advanced technology uh, propulsion car probably in the next couple of years as the minivans paint finally flakes off entirely. Sure. And uh, And so I'll be good with that. Uh, it's exciting to hear it. Now, it, it it was something that I thought was because at that time there just there weren't any options. And here I'm thinking that's your this is your promise. At that time, seemed unrealistic. Now that I know you hold on to a car for a decade, um, yeah, no, seems, I, uh, it seems right. more more realistic. I would have replaced my car if, uh, before now if there had been uh, a very very tempting choice. Hey, uh, you see many Aston Martin people around this uh, this museum? Uh, have you talked to them lately? Uh, people, no. We uh, have a few on display. Well, they uh, Andy Palmer is the new CEO of Aston Martin. He and he's from BMW, right? Uh, yes, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, but it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's Middle Eastern money mostly. Well, they uh, were doing a, an electric repeat. They want to work on. They are going to give up the internal combustion engine altogether. All of Aston Martin. Right. This is the this is the sort of the top line thing. Um, and he said, we're, "Look, regulations are such that we're just we would have to be building three cylinder Aston Martins to pass, uh, you know, uh, emissions regs uh, four or five or six or ten years out, and it's just not going to work. It's just not what Aston Martin is. Aston Martin's a you know a superior performance, high luxury, you know, and they're low segment. volume, they're, low volume. Yeah. So uh, so he said, you know what? We're going to skip the internal combustion engine. We're going to stick some hot hot EV and motors in there and some hot batteries and uh, uh, and try to appeal to a whole new breed of enthusiasts. You know what's funny is I feel like that one will work because everyone you know. Everyone wants a Ferrari for the sound. Mm. Everyone wants an Aston Martin for the interior and the mm. look. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it, they, the V12 Aston Martin sounds incredible. Um, but th- no one's thinking so much about Nürburgring times and 0 to 60 as much as luxury touring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can probably lower the cost of those cars. And, mm. and definitely, we've seen with the P90D, outperform any gas engine. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not a dumb move. I, don't know. I think that uh, I think there's a, a whole new class of extreme performance electric cars out there that are going to do the missionary work in a way that you know harpies like me or Elon Musk or anybody who's supporting EVs or Chris Pine or Payne or uh, uh, what's the guy uh, down something junior uh, uh, who's the EV. Uh, he rides a bike. He's uh, you know, Ed Begley. Ed, Ed Begley, Begley Jr. Jr. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, Ed Begley Jr. Wonderful man. You know. Uh, uh, but he can't change hearts and minds like a super fast electric car. No. No. And uh, yeah, uh, he's he's probably the most well versed guy into saving energy. But he's not Elon Musk. I mean, there's there's a reason Tesla excels. Uh, and, and I read an article where someone said why Tesla is going to be better than the rest because they've now made themselves Velcro, Windex, WD-40, 
they're the it's the name. Yeah. It's not I'm buying an electric car. It's I'm buying a Tesla. Mm-hmm. And I think Elon Musk being sort of the face, I mean, being the face of it is what's helping move those cars along versus uh, just a here's the car. Yeah. You're buying into the lifestyle. You're buying into the brand. Uh, one area I wanted to touch on with, and we touched on it earlier, is journalism now. It, you know, gone are the days of, you know, the let me read what the columnist of the LA Times had to say about the car I'm looking to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought my car. How I researched my cars, I watched YouTube videos. And mm-hmm. I didn't want the high polished YouTube videos. I wanted the dude with his camera phone yeah. to really show what the car looked mm-hmm. like. Is that something you embrace? Is it something that sort of angers you? And then, you know, I, I work in the communication side of the museum and we have two journalists a day come through here. It could be anybody from a full camera crew, 20 person set to literally a kid with his handheld camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to kind of treat him the same because he might have an audience just as big as, you know, an NBC show. Uh, maybe even scarily much bigger. Yeah. So <laughs> do you, is is there an old school method in you where you go, this is an art form, I write for a major outlet, mm. uh, or do you like these guys with the blogs, with, you know, the successful YouTube series, with mm-hmm. the podcasts? Yeah, I think they. I have the. I have no uh, issue with uh, sharing the road, um, and uh, then some of these guys are incredibly talented. And the fact that what they do is free or or uh, pir- or, or feels underground or in any way off the grid is a, is a, uh, reflects on the grid. You know that these people can't find legit jobs, so they make their own. But there's a lot of talent, and a lot of people are worth uh, listening to on the subject of cars. The user inter- the user videos on YouTube can't be beat. Uh, I could not do what they do in forty thousand words. Yeah, uh, because people are completely un they're unguarded. They're they're real. They're my my favorite guy is probably the least charismatic yeah. guy on YouTube. He's, he's a kid in I think North Carolina, uh-huh. and he just goes to the dealership. Asks for the car, never drives it, never did, and just twenty minutes opens the trunk, pops the hood, turns on yeah. the radio, show, and it's he makes a good living at it, mm-hmm. and it's it's not entertaining. It's not the least bit entertaining, you know, stuff like um, what Matt Farah and Chris um, Harris do. Mm-hmm. That's entertaining. I might not have learned much about that car, yeah, but I'm entertained. That kid, I'm bored out of my mind. Right, I learned about the Focus I wanted to buy. I, I, I hear you. And that's, uh, you know, the journalism uh, uh, has uh, two missions to entertain and inform. Uh, some of us uh, are more on the entertainment side. Uh, how I feel about it is that, um, you know, my job is to, I'm an entertainer. Uh, my subject is automobiles. Now, I do have policy issues, and I do have, uh, you know, I, I can uh, wade into policy um, but I think what I hope for readers is that it's not too much homework and it's not too much of a, uh, not too dreary and uh, uh, and so that I try and make it fun. Um, I had a line I thought you'd enjoy. Uh, I said, uh, like for example, this uh, past story. I said the Chevy Malibu is the sort of graft you could expect if you were the corrupt head of an English department. You know, it's a uh, you know, which is like a, a, just a throwaway lines, a little put yeah. down of the mat. But you know, it's entertaining, and uh, and I think it does. Says, do do you you now are a personality, and people want to read your articles and articles and your experiences. But and how do you sort of feel about? There's a lot of new, you know, to the Hunter S. Thompson days of. This is me when me isn't established yet, but this is me in this X, Y, Z. Yeah. Do you sort of look at them and go, put in your dues, make a name for yourself, yeah. build a yeah. reputation? You got to, well, first you got to fake it until you make it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I, no, I don't begrudge them that. And uh, I do think that there is a self regard in, uh, in, in new writers. Uh, where they tend to, well first they tend to overwrite first and then they tend to overestimate the the uh, the uh, what the power of their own experience mm-hmm. uh, so they made it literally all about them 
and and many of these people are good writers. But that's a sign of immaturity, really, as a writer. You know, you kind of have to, uh, uh, you know, strike the balance between being an interesting voice and then ha- using that voice to say something that's not about you. Yep. Uh, and uh, so I think that you know, there's some really tremendously talented writers out there. And uh, um, who are some of the the new or the up and coming people you? You really respect. Well, I think uh, this cat Zach Bowman is a real uh, a real literary writer. I think he's got a great sense of style and a great sense of metaphor, and uh, and uh, that. Uh, but again, you know, a, a, a guy who is uh, a stylist and a showman, a verbal showman. You know, then, then you really need to be on guard, not to, to be self-indulgent or uh, or overindulge. Of course, I'm the last person to lecture anyone about indulgences in writing because I'm famous for them. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but I try not to, you know, do it uh, uh, to excess. So, uh, and then there's uh, people like Davy uh, uh, Johnson, and there's uh, you know uh, our, my good friend Johnny Lieberman. Who uh, works for Motor Trend uh, was now. Here's an interesting case: Johnny Lieberman and Jason Camisa both work for Motor Trend. Mm-hmm. They make a they make a little TV show uh, called Head to Head, and it's those two guys and uh, Randy Popes, I think his name is. Who does the drive-in, right? And he's massively entertaining and a huge shoe and just wonderful. Uh, the whole show is just a riot. Why isn't that show on Top Gear? Why isn't that Top Gear? It ought to be. Um, I think it's very difficult to find the magic uh, in the medium. There have been very, very few successful car shows, for example. Um, Maybe one, uh, Top Gear UK. Uh, There are not that many successful car movies. Fast and Furious is an example uh, that that proves the rule. Fast and Furious is a billion-dollar franchise, but it's taken them seven movies. It's a multi-ethnic cast, beautifully played. And it's not the original concept of what it was. Absolutely not. It's moved way, way on. And, uh, you know, it turns out that if you spend that kind of money on uh, on a movie, regardless... We, oh, and add a lot of hot boys and girls, you know, yeah. going at it. That's fine. Uh, that'll do. That's good for uh, box office. But, for example, Mad Max, uh, which was a kind of a car-themed movie, you know, 150 domestic. It didn't do that great. Um, Need for Speed didn't do that great. Uh, you Which could, was a good. I mean, maybe it's showing my my bad taste. Gone in, in sixty seconds was got, was not what had all star cast. Yeah, did not did. Uh, they're good movies and they're not well received. That well, I'm, and I think that uh, 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 part of the challenge going forward. Well, I guess is, they're entertaining movies. I wouldn't call them. I, I wouldn't uh, call them I cinema think, film. Let me just say that I I, I agree with your edit there. Uh, yes, they are entertaining films, and uh, you know they're en- entertaining powerhouses, but. Uh, I think there's going to be a cliff uh, that all of this goes off. For example, in the past six years, uh, mentions of the automobile uh, in social media are down 40%. Average age of licensure, way up. Number of 16-year-olds with uh, a driver's license at historic lows, something like less than about 20%. Um, there are, uh, or, and then there are things like uh, the the costs of transportation and urbanization, and, and the, the fact there's Uber and Lyft, and shit, car sharing is going to be, and all of this. This whole generation is disengaging from the automobile as fast as they can, culturally and practically. Do you, in your opinion, is the future not good? I mean, not that it's not good, or is this a phase we're going through? Is this do you see in 10 years half the world's just going to have fractional ownership of a car and do ride sharing and everything will be autonomous? Is there a part of you that still wants the six speed 500 horsepower Mustang to be the car, uh, you know, on poster on every kid's wall? Uh, it, it's hard because uh, the, uh, Americans have been uh, fed a steady diet of this myth about the American road and the American love, uh, the love affair with the automobile and so forth. And that myth, in large part, is is uh, no longer operative. Uh, America is not in love with the automobile, and I guarantee you, people who live in Los Angeles are not in love with the automobile most of the time. 
Except for everyone who comes here. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for coming here. Keep well, on doing yeah, it. I mean, I mean the but, drivers. Yes. No, it, no, traffic in LA sucks. It really It'll be the, I'll be the first one to tell you the, and, and it, everyone goes, okay, Crimea River. And I say, I get a $100,000 car here. It's got 600 horsepower. Uh, it's great looking. It's beautiful. I get in it. I fire it up. I make a right. I'm in traffic. Yeah. If I want to really drive and experience that car in L.A., I have to wake up at 5.30, 5.45 in the morning. I have to go out to PCH. I have to go through the canyons. And come 7, that car's back to just sitting in traffic any day of the week. All right. I usually – now, uh, where's your uh, top speed? I'll tell you where my top speed track is, uh, secret top speed track, if you tell me yours. Well, where I've done the fastest I've ever driven, uh, which I will not share with you on the air, um, is a good stretch between here and going up to Monterey. Oh, um, really? That's a... Uh, it was a very, we'll never do that again, let's not talk about this. Uh, here in Los Angeles, to really light it up, I have what I call my bonsai run. And I get a car. I get up early morning. I live in West Hollywood. I take Sunset out to – I don't do Laurel or the main ones. Um, Benedict Canyon mm. is just – you feel like you're in a rally stage yeah. with $5 million homes on each side. It's just – it's a tiny road. It's back and forth. Then you start to wind up the canyon. Uh, then I, t- I take Mulholland over to Sepulveda, like where the Skirball is. And then that windy part of the Sepulveda, there's nobody there. There's no intersections. You're going downhill, gradual turns, and you can hit a very, very decent and illegal, uh, but safe and respectable top speed. Huh. Uh, so that would probably be mine. Where is yours? Uh, did I say I was? Well, there's the 210, um, which is... Uh, I grew up right next to it, right. uh, so... Two ten. That's a. That's a. Uh, you usually can you can do a recce on the two ten in one direction and then come hauling back in the other direction. Yep. Um, and uh, Lancaster, obviously, Avenue A and Lancaster. Uh, also a good spot. Is that on the way out to um, Willow Springs? That yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right. And uh, so um, uh, that's that's. That's my spot. Let's see. What other spots do I have now? Um, oh, oh, you know what else is good? What? So on that, you come down Sepulveda uh, to Wilshire, uh-huh. make a left, and then get right back on the 405. It is the nicest, most gradual 180-degree on-ramp that is one lane, downhill, walls on each side, so you get the exhaust echoing, and it's about a little more than a, about a half mile of just one lane, no interruption, right before you're on the 405. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is, you get sort of the winding, the twisting, the straightaway. That is sort of my my early morning uh, jaunt. Oh, that sounds nice. That, yeah, that's very good. Well, um, uh, so what else do you have for me? I think that's it. I think we covered it. What what is left for you? What is you've been all over the world. You've driven everything. Mm. You've seen just about anything. Is there something coming out you're looking forward to, you're excited about? Is there a car you've yet to drive and review that you're mm. dying to review? Mm. Is there an event you haven't been to that you're dying to go to? Yeah, all of those things. Uh, like Mission E, Porsche Mission E. I'm going to Stuttgart in a couple of weeks. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to get my butt in it, but uh, I will get to sit in it. But. I think that it's uh, that will be an important car because it is going to be the best sports car company in the world taking their very best swing at an electric car. Uh, so that should be spectacular. And the same guy Wallace, or uh, you know, is kind of overseeing both projects. Uh, he was the guy who did the uh, the nine eighteen and nine nineteen mm-hmm. cars. Um, and then, uh, well, I have a uh, I'm working on a public radio station. Uh, show about automobiles oh. called Motion Capture, and it will be about the culture of automobiles and culture of mobility. Uh, so, so is this a possible car talk replacement? Uh, yeah, I think that's the plan. Yeah, uh, and it, uh, the pilot comes out on Labor Day. Wow, it's going to be really fun. I hope so, and uh, um, and I think that uh, there's an, uh, an an audience will be served. Uh, and as far as uh, events that I haven't done, well, let's see now. There are some events that I would not do. Uh, I would like to do Bathurst in a V8 uh, supercar. 
Uh, you want to race in it? Or just... No, 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 no. Just take a pass. Yeah. You uh, know, I was just a... <laughs> <laughs> but I, but my friend Aaron Robinson of Car and Driver uh, and I have talked about going down there in the summertime, their wintertime, and taking, uh, you know, a Ford Falcon, I think they call it. And then there is the uh, Holden Monero, right? Which is the Chevy SS. Chevy, right, right, right. Which and, is a phenomenal car. Yeah, well, these are, uh, yeah, these are tubbed in twos. Yeah. I mean, they're super, stu- they're great race cars. Uh, if you've ever seen those V8 supercars. Yeah. Ugh. And so I'd like to do Bathurst. Uh, and I think, uh, I would like to ride the wall of death on a motorcycle. Sure. You know, take a little scrambler, like a 350 scrambler. It's on all of our checklists. Exactly. Exactly. It's actually, I think, you know, it's, it should be pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, literally. Cause if not, you fall. That's right. Right. Well, I've, I've watched it. I've watched it done and I'm like, uh, okay, I can handle that. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing I will not do, I think this is just, you know, you may want to bring it up with your next, uh, guests. Um, there's some cars I won't climb in a top fuel dragster. Now, why uh, is that? I'm just not, uh, I'm just not, I don't think so. It's, okay. They're, they're scary. They are scary. They're hor- They're very scary. Horrifying. And uh, and what kills me is that John Force's daughters go out there and they drive those things and you know they're and uh, and they just don't bat an eyelash uh, at climbing in those things and going three hundred and thirty well, miles an you hour. You know, you you go. Hey, this car's got a zero to sixty of four seconds. This car's got a zero to sixty of three seconds. Then you get in the P one and the nineteen. This is two and some change. That car is going from standstill to well over 300 miles an hour in a thousand feet. I mean, a 12.4 second quarter mile is very fast. They're doing less than a quarter mile in 2.9, 3.1 seconds. I was amazed when they, I remember when they cut it down to a thousand feet about six years ago. Yep. NHRA rules changed it to a thousand feet, and there's like, we'll never break, we'll never break four seconds. No. Uh, you know, the first year they were three thirties, uh, in the thousand foot and they've just gotten faster and faster. I mean, you know, yeah. it's really, and that I'm going to guess that that hurts. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if the Tesla acceleration kind of gets to you, maybe the top fuel dragster uh, might, man, might be, I bet that hits you like a train. Um, so you know, uh, what is that your list of what you won't do or that is about it. Yeah, that is about it. I would, uh, for example, uh, I've driven monster trucks, formula one trucks, uh, formula one, um, 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 um uh, hydroplane, hydroplane, uh, boats, which are murder with a rudder. That might not be the drag boat. I think that, might be the, the scariest. Those of them things all. are nuts. You want to talk about most risk for least reward. <laughs> If you're Lewis Hamilton, there's a it's there's a good chance you could die, but yeah. you're still making ninety five million dollars a year, and you're an international superstar, and everyone knows who you are. True, uh, you're going two hundred fifty miles an hour on a boat that is only meant to just sink and crash. Can you name one top fuel drag boat racer? Is there one that is even turning a profit? Uh, I mean, I imagine most of these guys are putting their own money into it. It's so, an interesting question. The question of profit is very thorny. But, you know, there's – I mean, drag racing. You've got the, the Force family. Uh, you've got Alexis DeJoria, and that's it. I don't think I mean, they're making it. And, and I mean they're making it. And they're it. not making what NASCAR is making. They're not even making a fraction of it. Right. I mean, IndyCar is not even is making it. Is that true? I would assume. I would uh, assume because so. Because you figure that – I've, I've watched NRA – NHRA and uh, you know covered the the nationals a few times and I was thinking like you know what is uh what is John's uh funny car team is that 10 million a year it's got to be more than 10 million a year to run it yeah oh yeah I mean and that's the thing is these these cars are so expensive you're rebuilding the engines every time there's so much R&D that there's only so much sponsorship you can get and right. when you're a force or you're you know a big name it's a little bit easier but then think of the other 15 people you've never heard of they're competing with. Right. they got to be just as competitive, and it costs just as much, and they're not getting any of the sponsorship. I mean, there there are people in Formula One, in the back of the grid, who may not be making very much money. And especially when you then get into Formula Three or Formula Two, they're almost just as good. They're going through the same thing. Yeah. They might be a tenth of a second slower uh, than in, in, uh, Nico Rosberg, they're making fifty-five grand a year when the other ones are making fifty-five million a year. So it's no. that threshold for money is so small. But then you've got 
some things that have insane risks like top fuel drags or drag boat racing uh motorcycle racing i mean it's oh speaking of motorcycle racing and the, sort of the uh the finances of motorsport uh, a few months ago i rode jared me's uh harley davidson xr750 dirt track uh bike that's he's uh, he's the uh current reigning uh flat track ama champion so, something uh, where it's again Far more dangerous than what you get out of it. So I get, I, I go to Charlotte and I get on this guy's bike and I'm on a dirt track, just you know, and I cannot get the thing to turn. Uh, I, you know, I'm just trying so hard to go fast because these big bikes, you have to go fast to get them to lay down. I can't get it to do it. So, um, but the point is that he and his wife live these bare gypsy uh, lives, track to track engine rebuild to engine rebuild they're not getting in their g4 no money at all they're no money at all they're just barely getting by and uh you know that is uh those are the the true believers and that's the what you just said the champion yeah that is the champion of the sports and now think of time champion it's so yeah there's if if you've heard of these people they're probably doing well there, but for every one you've heard of, there's 200 that are almost as good, a, if not better, yeah. that will lose money at the end of the year. It's a calling. It's a sickness also, I think we'll all agree. Yeah, yes. It, well, I've always said no car person's normal <laughs> at any level. We're all weird. Mm. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it, it's a passion and a sickness. Uh, Daniel, before I could take up all day talking to you and take up too much of your time, I'm going to let you go. Uh, everybody, check out Dan's work at WSJ.com, the Wall Street Journal. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. Pass along the show to a friend who you think might be interested. And check every Tuesday at Peterson.org and on iTunes for new Car Stories episodes. Dan, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, AJ. Thank you, AJ.